Well, friends, we have come a long way from that first walk along the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called his first followers. And I want to thank uh, Zach for leading us through Mark 13 last week and the, the difficult chapter that that was. Um, but Mark 13, it closed with some ominous words. When Jesus said, Keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Remember that part. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So Jesus kind of ends this chapter with, well, stay awake, stay awake, be alert, stay, stay vigilant, keep watch. And now as we get to Mark 14, things take a really dark turn. And sadly, Jesus' disciples are going to fail him totally and miserably. You know, in this season of Lent, as we get closer to the cross and Easter, uh, we tend to think of the suffering of Jesus as primarily, you know, his arrest and, and the beatings and, and those horrible things that happened to him. We, we, we cut right to Good Friday. But Mark 14, to me, is one of the saddest chapters in the whole Bible and one of the most tragic events of human history. And if I were to title this chapter myself, I would title it, Jesus' Faithfulness to His Faithless Friends. His Faithfulness to His Faithless Friends. And we're going to look at kind of five scenes from this story uh, and that play on this theme. And so the first scene that we're going to look at is when Jesus' followers disdain Him. And if you do want to open to Mark 14 and follow along, you're, you're, I invite you to do that. Um, and we're going to begin in verses 1 through 2. And it says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So the plot is underfoot. They're scheming together. Hum humans are conspiring together to kill the Son of God who came to save them. And it's at this point that everything is going to start unraveling and everyone is going to start turning against Jesus and failing him. And so we get that story that Wendy talked about. Je Jesus is reclining at the table uh, in a house and a woman comes in and pours expensive perfume on his head. And some of the people present, these were uh, people who were following him around. These were some of his followers. And they were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. I mean, let's just note the fact that this is some incredibly expensive perfume. A year's wages? I mean, th think about what you make in a year or what you made in a year when you were working and that's how much it would cost to you. You fill, the do you fill in the dollar amount. That's how much this woman was willing to pour out on Jesus. I mean, we'll take an average salary in America. This is a $50,000 perfume. This is insane. And Jesus commends this woman. These people who were eating with Jesus, these people who were following him around, listening to his teaching, they were angry and annoyed at this woman. Why is she doing this? Obviously, she knew who Jesus was. She had some type of interaction with him before. And we don't know exactly what prompted her to do this, but the text says literally in the Greek, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. In other words, 
She valued Jesus more than what she had. And she didn't have to do this. She wanted to do this for Jesus. He was worth more to her than this $50,000 perfume. She reminds us of that poor widow who put all she had into the temple treasury, all she had to live on. She valued God over money and possessions. These, these women, these, these are shining examples uh, in the Bible of how to value the Lord. And what Jesus received as worship, the other people considered a waste. So how are you evaluating things? Is it worship or is it waste? Do you ever think that worship is a waste? Do we ever think that prayer, giving, serving, it's kind of a waste? What does it get me? See, the problem was his followers did not value Jesus for who he is. And they disdained this, this woman's worship. And I think sometimes we all can be susceptible to this. When, when people have the attitude of, remember David's wife, Mickle? Or when David is dancing uh, undignified before the Lord, it says she despised him for his outrageous dancing before God. And so these stories, in this story, it asks us the question, how much worship is too much worship? How much giving is too much giving? How much devotion is too much devotion? And I think it's why we must ask ourselves, what do I most value in life? What do I most value? And is it Jesus? Do we value him more than the things of this world, than money and stuff, than more experiences and food and drink and clothing? Look into your heart. Look into your bank account. What do you most value? The sad thing is no one besides Jesus, no one besides Jesus commends this woman for her worship and her devotion. So all of his followers who were around him that evening sharing dinner with him, they disdain him. They don't value him. This is the first sad scene in one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. The second sad scene, I almost hate to name it this, but I'm going to call it the hypocritical supper. I almost hate to use the, the title for what we are going to experience together later in this service, but I can't think of a better term that actually speaks to what happens. I think we tend to romanticize the Last Supper. It's the one final time where, where Jesus and his buddies, they're together, you know? And if you were to paint this scene like Leonardo da Vinci did, some of you know that painting, how would you draw the emotions of the people there? You know, before the words of institution, you know, when Jesus gives them the bread and cup, there were the ominous words of betrayal. In verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Scholar David Garland says this, The most appropriate portrayal of the Last Supper would paint each disciple's face with a look of horror. They eat and drink in an atmosphere of sorrow and worry. And the central question preoccupying their minds is not the fate of Jesus, but who might be the one to betray him. They're not concerned about their Lord, they're concerned about themselves. And it says in verse 19, they were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. 
Lord, surely I wouldn't do that to you. And Jesus says in verse 20, It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. One of the twelve? One of the inner circle? One who is eating bread with us? And then let me remind you that eating together in this time, in this culture, was such a sign of hospitality, friendship, welcome, family. You would never betray someone that you ate bread with. How could you do that? This is a betrayal of committed friendship. And so after this prediction of the betrayal, it's then that Jesus shares with them the Last Supper. He institutes the new covenant. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want to jump to what happens right after. In verse 27, Jesus says to them right after the supper, you will all fall away. But Peter insisted emphatically, verse 31, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Not just Peter, all of them. Lord, we're not going to fall away. We'll not, we'll not, we won't disown you. you know, but Jesus, he had prophetic knowledge in the Holy Spirit of what was going to happen to him. And he knew based on these Old Testament prophecies what his fate was going to be. And this meant that all of his followers were going to leave him, were going to desert him when he needed them the most. Now, I, I don't think it's likely at all that Jesus just somehow had this epiphany right after the Lord's Supper that they're all going to fall away. Uh, no, he, he knew this before. He washed their feet and he gave them the bread and the cup. And so right before the supper, we have the prediction that one of them is going to betray him, right? And they're all saying, surely not me. Surely not I. And right after the supper, Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. And they all insist, no, I'm not going to do that. And this is why I have to call it the hypocritical supper. Because during and after the table and all surrounding the table, they all say, we are committed to you, Lord. But right after, they are going to desert him. They say one thing, but they're going to do another. They will not be faithful to their commitment. Do we ever do that? We say one thing to the Lord, and yet we go right out and do something different. Jesus surely must have felt let down at the least that not one of them, not one of them could keep their commitment to him. But I want you to notice how faithful Jesus is, even though he knows how faithless his friends are going to be to all of his disciples who he knew would desert him, even to the one who would outright betray him, he washes their feet. He gives them the bread. He gives them the cup, saying, my body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be poured out even for you. He still offered fellowship, hope, forgiveness, and love to those who would fail him most. So friends, no one in the universe has more fierce, loyal, and faithful love than Jesus Christ. No one. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So we never have to doubt his love. We never have to doubt his love because it's not dependent on how good we are, but on how faithful he is. He's loving and forgiving to those who are faithless. 
The third sad, uh, sad scene we will look at is when Jesus' best friends weren't there for him. Sorry, this isn't a very happy sermon. This is a sad, sad story. The next scene in this dark story, I don't think you could come up with anything more tragic or honestly uh, ironic. It's a little bit comedic what happens. I mean, Jesus just had told him in Mark 13, remember, don't let the master find you sleeping. And now we're going to get a story of them all falling asleep. And he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he takes his, his closest three, his closest friends with him further into the garden. Peter, James, and John, those who were pillars in the church, those privileged with more access to Jesus, those who saw him, remember, majestically transformed on the mountain in the transfiguration. They've seen his glory. And then it says in verse 33, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. I mean, imagine telling this to your closest friend. I am overwhelmed with sorrow. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Would you stay and keep watch with me? Would you stay here and pray with me? Would you not expect them on the count of your, of your close friendship and on account of what you just told them? Would you not expect them to be there for you at the hardest moment in your life? They weren't there for Jesus. And it says Jesus went out a little farther to pray alone, praying for some way, uh, some other way in the divine plan. And we know that he says, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And then in verse 37, he returns to his disciples and finds them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think it's notable that even though there's been this immense failure in the friendship, in the relationship, Jesus, he's a little exasperated, I think. Are you asleep? But yet he's still faithful. Uh, he uh, instructs them about the flesh versus the spirit. He warns them of the need to keep watching and praying. He believes the best about them, actually, I think. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. I know that you desire, you told me, you want to be with me. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. We need to learn this lesson. They proclaim they want to be faithful, they want to stick with Jesus, but their flesh, their, their body, their sin nature is weak. And I think what can happen is we can, we can grow uh, physically tired, emotionally, spiritually tired, and Satan can take advantage of that. He can. And he can tempt us and lead us into sin and away from the Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that they are exhausted because of sorrow. The impending doom of what has happened. You ever, you ever worry about something that you know is about to happen and just kind of makes you sick to your stomach? This is what's happening to the disciples. They know what's about to happen and the anxiety of what they're about to go through. They know one of their best friends is about to betray Jesus. And they, they are sick to their stomachs. They are, they, are, they are exhausted because of sorrow. And friends, so often, when we are weighed down by cares, by anxieties, by fears, by concerns, by sorrow, by grief, 
we can be tempted just to, just to kind of check out, to, to isolate, to scroll, to just kind of, you know, sit around and do nothing. You know, and I think sometimes that, yeah, a nap might be the best spiritual thing you can do for yourself. Uh, but what we most need in those moments when we're weighed down is more of God. It's more of God. When we're weighed down by all kinds of things, that's when our flesh is the weakest. When we're, when we're at our weak, weakest moment, that's when you're the least likely to reach out to God in prayer and to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's actually in those moments that you most need Him. And so when we're not in those moments, we say, yeah, I'm going to be a person who prays. I'm going to be a person who seeks God. I'm going to be a person who's committed to Him. But in our weakest moments, when we're most vulnerable, that's when we least want to seek Him out. But that's when we most need Him. So I just want to say to you, just stay awake. Stay alert. Keep watch and pray. Let your grief, let your worry, let your things you're concerned about, let that lead you into prayer. Just let, let that be a sign. Oh, if I'm worried about this, I need to pray about this. That's the attitude we should have. And we can't just wish for more strength. We have to seek God for strength. We only get the strengthening of the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's sought by prayer. And so Jesus gives them this le lesson that we should take seriously. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You desire to follow me, but you have a weak flesh. You need to seek strength through prayer. And then verse 39, it says, Once more he went away. He prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. <laughs> you can just imagine this. I'm at a loss, Lord. I'm at a loss, Lord. I don't know what to say to you. And then it happens a third time. So this, this happens three times. And Jesus says, are you still sleeping and resting? His best friends, they've totally failed him. Jesus seems mystified, exasperated by their faithlessness. And kind of to a point, right, Peter had just said, Lord, even if everybody else falls away, even if I have to die with you, I'm not going to give up on you. And James and John, they wanted to be at his right and left hand, Remember? And they said, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. We can go through the suffering that you're going to go through. But their words were meaningless. They failed to do what they told Jesus they would do. And now the moment of betrayal is here. The fourth scene is when Judas betrays him. Judas betrays him. Judas, I think, is a, a very interesting character in the Gospels. And many people, they desire to know, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Why did one of the 12, why did one of the people that, that Jesus picked himself to be with him, to follow him, to eat with him, to travel with him, he saw everything Jesus did. How could it come to this? Why did he do it? You know, people have come up with all kinds of interesting theories and ways that you can kind of psych psychoanalyze the situation, what were his motives. Um, and the Bible doesn't give us much, but it does, I think, give us enough. It gives us enough. Here in Mark, it says that the chief priests, they promise him money. In Matthew, Judas comes to them, and he is the one who brings up what he can get out of it. He says to them, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And then John tells us that Judas was a thief. He actually had been stealing money out of the money bag that the disciples carried around the, with them for their expenses. 
And then it says, John says that Satan influenced him in this way. So if we put all of the accounts together, the picture that we get is that Judas was tempted by Satan to betray Jesus out of his desire for greed and wealth. It's not without good reason the Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And perhaps even Paul was thinking about Judas when he wrote, some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now we, th- we may think, how could Judas do this? Just for some money? Just for money? Just for, just for greed? And we may fault him for, for trading the Son of God for money. But Jesus also told us, you can only have one master. You're either going to serve me or serve mammon. Which one is it going to be? And how often, and even though those little things we do, they all, all add up, but do we show, show Jesus that he is our master or is it the things of this world? How often do we make that same trade? And sadly, Judas values money over Jesus and agrees to betray him. A crowd comes with Judas. They're armed with swords and clubs, which is like, guys, this is, this is overkill. Like, this is a teacher of nonviolence. He's been, I've been with you in the temple every day. You're bringing swords and clubs? This doesn't even make sense. Why are you doing this? And then it says in verse 45, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. I mean, this is, this is insulting. He calls him Rabbi, his teacher. Clearly, he's learned nothing from his rabbi. And then he gives them a kiss, a sign of respect and or affection. And it's now a sign of his betrayal. And then I think we get to the climax of this section, the saddest moment of Mark 14, verse 50. Everyone deserted him and fled. Everybody. Everybody deserted Jesus. Not one person, not one of his friends stayed by his side. The creator God, one of his first acts was to recognize it's not good for man to be alone. And he created a helper. Now stands alone by himself to face all of the suffering that's about to come his way with no human encouragement, no human support, no human love. And the crowd brings him to the chief priests. And he goes to a sham trial. And we're going to come back to that next week. But for now, we're going to skip ahead to Peter. The final scene we'll look at is when Peter disowns him. Peter, the rock, the one who in Mark chapter 8 was willing to say, you are the Messiah. The one who said to Jesus, even if everybody falls away, I will not. Even if I have to die, I will not disown you. And again, we see that the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. One scholar says, our sins of omission lead, lead to sins of commission. Peter failed to pray three times, and he's going to deny his Lord three times. Peter ended up doing the very thing he publicly said he would not do. And if you look at what he says, he essentially says, I wasn't with them. I'm not one of them. I don't know this man. Wow. Ouch. 
He's fallen a long way from saying what he said he would never do. He failed to keep his word to Jesus, and he disowns him. Jesus is faithful to his faithless friends. I warned you, this is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. But as we move closer to Holy Week, we need to look at the stark reality of what Jesus went through for us so we can appreciate what he did for each one of us. His followers, they didn't disdain him. They despised this woman who valued him. They shared bread with him. They proclaimed that they would not betray him and fall away, yet they all did. Even after pleading with him, even after telling him how much sorrow he was going through, they wouldn't stay with him and pray. Judas betrays him for some money and brings armed guards with him. Are you kidding me? And Peter, the one who said emphatically, I will never do this, he disowns him three times. So we think about the story, I want you a few things that I might suggest by way of application. First, let's be grateful and worshipful for how faithful Jesus is in this circumstance and always. We are so fickle, but he is so faithful. Everyone abandoned him, but he still gave them the Lord's Supper. He agonized in the garden while his friends were failing him, and he still went through with the plan to go to the cross. While you were yet a sinner, he laid down his life for you. No one loves us like Jesus, friends. No one loves us like him. And the only person to be commended in this whole chapter is this woman who said her story would be told because she is the one person out of, out of the 12, out of all the people, she is the one who valued him for who he truly is. And Jesus said, she prepared me for my burial because she valued him. She worshiped him. So let's worship him like that woman. Also, the second thing I'd like to suggest to us is let's consider how we can love others like Jesus does. It takes supernatural strength. It can, this can only happen in the power of the Spirit. And I think it's easy to, to get, get dismayed at, at the church these days and, and maybe, we're, maybe we're upset at the unfaithfulness of things Christians have said or done. And I just want to remind us that the church is a hospital for sinners, for each one of us. There's no perfect people here. And Jesus offered the bread and wine to those who would betray him. He went to the cross for those who failed him. So can we make space for grace? Can we make space for grace for people's failings and their unfaithfulness and sin? Because Jesus made that space for us. Let's love like he does. And finally, I want to encourage you to watch and pray so that you can stay as faithful as you can to Jesus. This text demands much of us, and it demands that we examine ourselves. If one of the twelve could betray him, if James and John, those guys who really wanted to follow Jesus, the sons of thunder, if they could disown him, if Peter, the rock, the one who said, I will never fall away, if all those people could disown Jesus, then aren't we vulnerable to the same temptations, to the same Satan? to the same forces 
that drew them away from him. And I believe every single one of you here, you intend to follow Jesus. Just by being here, you're showing your spirit is willing. You desire to know him. You desire to follow him. And the same tr truth is true of you right now, true of all of us. Your spirit is willing, but our flesh is so weak. Our flesh is so weak. How often do we say empty words to him? Oh, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. I surrender all. I surrender all. But then we walk out of here, and there are empty words, and we still do the sin that we don't want to do. So how did Jesus want us to strengthen ourselves against the temptations of the flesh, against unfaithfulness? And I believe he wanted us to do this through earnest and faithful prayer. Through earnest and faithful prayer. I believe we all need to develop rhythms of regular prayer and disciplines to, to retrain our character and to find spiritual strength. And I want to remind you to consider practicing his presence. He is with you. He is with you. He is in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. You're a walking temple of God everywhere you go. So consider that he's with you and allow that to lead you into prayer and allow the things that you're stressed about right now or the things, the worries and the things that weigh you down, allow those to lead you to his presence. And not just to think about it, but to pray about it. So I commend to you prayer, and I also commend to you the discipline of communion. Even though we, don't, we know that we will never be without sin, we must do our best, and we must do our best to not take the Lord's Supper hypocritically. Paul said we should examine ourselves before coming to the table. And uh, I, I want to give you this quote from David Garland as we close. He says, Today, each must ask himself or herself, as these disciples did. Surely, not I. When the Lord's Supper is served at the end of a worship service, people may examine their watches more than their hearts. And they may be worried more about lunch than about how they have betrayed Jesus in the previous week or how they might betray him in the next. We are worthy of the Lord's Supper when we recognize how unworthy we are. We feel its power when we also recognize that Jesus died for us and accepts us in spite of our unworthiness. So friends, as we do prepare to take the Lord's Supper that he instituted for us. Let's spend some time right now examining our own hearts, examining our souls, confessing sins that the Holy Spirit brings to mind, repenting of them. And even though we know our flesh is weak, let's still yet commit to being faithful to the ever-faithful Jesus Christ.